Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Ever snore so loud it registered as an earthquake or you woke up with a throat as dry as the Sahara Desert and a headache that could stop a locomotive? Well, I've had all of these because I have sleep apnea. Hi, I'm Scott Mitchell. Yep, I wear a machine plugged into a wall attached to a hose every night. Sound Sleep Medical changed all of this for me, and they can do that for you. They specialize in providing oral appliance therapy for individuals suffering from sleep disorders. In many cases, oral appliances have proven to be as effective as CPAP machines in treating sleep apnea. The lack of sleep is a serious health risk and has been linked to heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and even depression. The oral appliance I got from Sound Sleep Medical has freed me from a hose. I can go anywhere, and I've never slept better. Call Sound Sleep Medical today. Seriously, for a limited time, the first 25 people that call get a free consultation worth 200 bucks. Call 801-783-5451. It's 801-783-5451. Hello, I'm Jim Bennett. And I'm Stephen Provitt. And this is Dinner Table Politics. And that's a voice you haven't heard before, Stephen Provitt. That, your last name isn't Bennett. Doesn't no, that screw things up? It does, especially with job opportunities. With job opportunities? Yeah. Well, Provitt is spelled with a W, too, so everybody thinks it's Prowitt. Mm-hmm. Does that still disturb you after all these years? And not really. We're just, uh, you know, the German invasion is what I call myself. All right. Well, that sounds good. Well, uh, just to introduce you to everybody. So Stephen Provitt is six months older than Abby. He is my sister's son, correct? Your mother is my sister. Is that yes. how it works? I hope so. So you are a, a maternal Bennett. Is Bennett your middle name? You don't have a middle name. Are you Stephen? I'm Stephen Brett. Stephen Brett Provitt. With one T okay. after my father, so not Bennett-related. Right. Bennett has two Ts at the end. I can't ever watch Pride and Prejudice because that's Bennett with one T, and it drives me nuts. But you named your daughter after. Eliza. We didn't know. Well, I didn't know that. Mm. But yeah, Eliza Bennett. She's Elizabeth Bennett. And mm-hmm. Anyway, it's all so very confusing. <laughs> but uh, Stephen, you are a student up at the University of... Utah State University. Recent graduate, actually. Recent graduate. Yes. And, but you have a political science degree? Yes. So you're a political guy from way back. Yeah. I, uh, well, from way back, about when um, Bob was, you know, lost his seat is about when I gained interest. So Bob being your grandfather. Bob being my grandfather. Yes. I, I, I was running that race. It's so my you're fault. familiar with the, with the situation. I'm familiar with the situation. Well, you just got off working. You were working for Eric Elison, who yes. ran as the United Utah Party candidate in the 1st Congressional District. Yes, against Rob Bishop. And he got 11% of the vote. Uh, 11 and a little bit. 
We uh, take with pride. See, I like to tell everybody that I am the most successful third-party congressional candidate in Utah history. Mm. That's not true anymore. Eric, yeah, I like to tell people that you are the second most successful yes, third-party candidate. I, I very much appreciate that. <laughs> so we're getting this podcast out a little bit later. Abby has been tied up at finals at BYU. She's just finished her finals. But you have graciously agreed to come and pinch hit here. here. So I want to talk to you about a subject that I'm sure everybody out there wants to, wants to hear about, and that's the politics of Christmas. Da da da. Yeah, yeah. What do you think? Um, By the well, way, you have a lovely mellifluous voice. Do that, I? That I think comes in handy with your rock you. band, correct? Well, yeah, it does. And I'll Google that word and then I'll be even more flattered. Mellifluous? You don't know what mellifluous <laughs> means? Don't. Uh Your rock band, what's it called? Um, we are the Humpback Chubs. The Humpback Chubs. Which is an endangered species of chub fish here in Utah. I didn't even know there was a chub fish. Yeah, there is. And the humpback chub is endangered, so save the chub. Okay, and come see your rock band. When can people come and hear you sing? Um, our next show will be January 13th up in Logan. All right. Um, I don't actually know the address off the top of my head. Where is it? Well, but you know what it's called? Um, no, I don't. Nor have we practiced. <laughs> so if you want to come, uh, come prepared. All right. Well, so in the meantime, we need to get through Christmas and the politics of Christmas. And... As this has been happening, uh, the political development of the day is that Donald Trump is refusing to sign the bill that's going to keep the government open unless the Democrats agree to fund his border wall. Mm, yes. And what my question is, why isn't he shutting down the Mexican government? Because isn't Mexico supposed to be paying for this wall? Uh, Mexico is, and I think... You know, he lost that battle a long time ago, and he's trying not to lose re-election battle. Right. And so, you know, half the distance is better than none of the distance in his mind is what I'm thinking. Well, the big scandal of today is that he he only ha he has something like 5.6 million Twitter followers, mm -hmm. but he only himself follows 45 people. Mm. And one of them is Ann Coulter. Do you know I, Ann Coulter? I do. Yeah. Are you in love with Ann Coulter? Well, I mean, no. She's... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Lovely woman. But. Lovely, lovely Ann Coulter. Uh, and she called him, she, she, just, she is, is essentially saying if he can't get his border wall, then he is a complete failure as a president. And she's mm. been tweeting about that and beating up on Donald Trump. And Donald Trump today unfollowed Ann Coulter. Uh, did he? I yes. didn't hear about that. He unfollowed Ann Coulter. Ann Coulter wrote a book called In Trump We Trust. Mm. So I think that's what it's called. I don't remember. I haven't read it. You don't believe it, so you're not going to remember. I don't. Well, I don't trust in Trump per ah. se. So I, I, I had a little bit of a run-in on Facebook with people about. I posted the C, a link to the CNN story about George H. W. Bush. Did you hear about George H. W. Bush passing away? Well, he yes. passed away. Yes, that's not what I meant. Okay. He um, these letters surfaced. Oh, with the the child in the Philippines. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. For ten years, that. he was writing letters to this child in the Philippines and sponsoring mm -hmm. him. And not never told him who he was. And my comment on there was, can you imagine Donald Trump doing anything similar? Um, only with some serious questionable motives right. would he be writing letters to children. <laughs> right, right. A friend of mine said, well, if they had healthy organs that he wanted to harvest. Yeah, that or might be. scoping them for Trump University, maybe right, grooming right. them. I mean, I don't think he writes letters to his own children. I don't, I don't <laughs> think he even knows who Tiffany Trump is. Mm. So it's... It's just, and, and on the flip side, can you imagine George H. W. Bush 
paying hush money to a porn star in six figures uh, in order to, you know, what, a yeah, porn know. star that he had an affair with while his third wife was pregnant. Uh, if he has done it, he did it more successfully because none of us heard about it. Because none of us heard about it. We, so so the, 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 the character difference between George H.W. Bush and Donald Trump continues to astound me as mm-hmm. we uh, the flags still have been down mm-hmm. uh, half mast are they supposed to be down for the entire month or? Uh, i i'm not sure we noticed yesterday actually we drove past two that were and two that weren't so okay i don't think the flag raisers are sure either okay well so in political terms as we approach the holiday season and we're almost right up to christmas it looks like the government might shut down and that, I think, has to be one of the stupidest things that Donald Trump could possibly do. Uh, government shutdowns never go well, mm-hmm. particularly for Republicans. Uh, do, you, do you have any memory of any government shutdowns? I do. Um, uh, in high school, it would have been my, my junior year, Obama shut down, uh, a, a shutdown over the— How old were you in your junior year? Oh, that's a great question. Oh, so you're 16. I would, I would have been 16 or 17. So, so that would have been, what, 2011? Yeah, something like that. Okay. Um, yeah, but I don't know if this is the, in Trump's mind, at least, well, obviously it's not, but for his supporters, a government shutdown may just energize them. We don't understand them. I know I don't. <laughs> and I know that, um, a government shutdown could be seen as he's dying on a hill of, uh, you know, of honor because right. he's not getting his wall. And so that might go his way. Right. Well, the whole wall, the whole idea of the wall is so stupid on so many different levels. <laughs> One being, okay, we've got a 2,000-mile border, southern border, mm-hmm. and already 650 miles of it have some kind of physical obstruction that we have built. Right. So we've already built a good chunk of the wall. Mm-hmm. And in the other areas, I mean, there are a number of areas that are impassable. You know, they can't cross through the Rio Grande. We don't have a wall or a dam blocking off the river. Mm-hmm. You know, there are all kinds of things that are in place to keep people from scurrying across the border. And illegal immigration is down significantly. Uh, the idea that we need a wall is also belied by the fact that over half of the people who come here illegally come here legally and allow their visas to expire mm-hmm. and then just stay. They don't have to scurry across the border in the mm-hmm. dead of night. This All is, the while contributing to the economy in a really beneficial way. I just right. Know. Well, they're, they're, they're working for depressed wages, and they're, not, they're paying into the Social Security system, if, mm-hmm. and they're not receiving those kinds of benefits. Mm-hmm. Although everybody says, well, they're taking too many benefits and all of that. But really, uh, the fact of the matter is illegal immigration, in terms of its impact on the economy at this point, it's, 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 it's negligible. Mm-hmm. And it... This is a completely political stunt on Trump's part to scapegoat illegal immigrants for all of the problems in the world. And you're right, though. Trump, I think, absolutely has to deliver on this if he's going to be able to go into reelection. Mm-hmm. But a government shutdown is a terrible way to do that. And when we get back from our break, I want to talk to you about the history of government shutdowns and how well or not well they've worked out for the guy in the White House. Well, I'll have some reading to do. So how did your reading go? You had some reading to do. What did you discover? Um, I discovered there's a lot more that I don't know than I do know. Okay. Well, the first time in my memory, and I think it's probably the first time in the modern era that a government shutdown was used as a political tool, was right after the 1994 elections. Mm -hmm. 
And the 1994 elections were the first time in 40 years that the Republicans retook control of the House of Representatives. And Newt Gingrich, who was the Speaker of the House at the time, had nationalized congressional elections in a way that had never been done before. Mm -hmm. He created the contract with America, and there were 10 promises that he was focusing on that uh, Republicans were going to deliver on if they've got control of Congress, and Republicans just... It was just a stunning night. And, I, you know, I was quite the Republican hack at the time. Mm-hmm. And I have never been more delighted watching an election result than watching all of the faces of all of the news anchors just completely collapse in fear and panic when they realized that Newt Gingrich was going to be Speaker of the House of Representatives. I, I don't know if you've ever had a similar kind of delight watching election returns. Um, no. All right. <laughs> never, never even once. Well, for a brief moment, when we took second place in Cash County with Eric Elison. Oh, yeah. And it didn't turn into first place, but there was some delight there. There was some delight there. Yeah. Well, so uh, Newt Gingrich had steamrolled President Clinton. Even in Clinton, Clinton was asked at a press conference if he was still relevant. Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of president gets asked the question, are you still relevant? Well, I'm, you know, president of the United States. But it was just a huge shellacking for Bill Clinton. And so Newt Gingrich was just sure that everything that the Republicans passed, Bill Clinton would sign. And they passed, you know, Bill Clinton had vetoed welfare reform twice prior to the contract with America. And then they passed welfare reform and Bill Clinton signed it and it became his signature achievement. He talks about welfare reform as the greatest thing he ever done. Mm-hmm. And it was a Republican initiative that pushed it through. I like to tell people that in the 90s, if you liked what the Clinton administration was doing, you needed to remember that you were essentially living in Newt Gingrich's America, mm-hmm. not Bill Clinton's America. How does that make you feel? Um, you weren't alive in the 90s, so I you didn't I wasn't alive, so all of my uh, commentary is retrospective. Did you, did you meet Newt Gingrich when he came out to campaign for your grandfather? No, I didn't. Oh. Meet him. Yeah, I was young and uninterested. You were young and uninterested. <laughs> Which yeah, I kick myself for plenty. He he came out, he recorded an ad. He he was very supportive of of my father, and so I will always have a soft spot in my heart for him for that. But in terms as of his political strategy in the winter of nineteen ninety five, didn't go over very well because he had also created a Medicare funding bill that gave block grants to the states to fund Medicare. Mm-hmm. And that was perceived as a cut in Medicare services. It wasn't. But Bill Clinton refused to sign that bill, and that bill was part of the funding measure to keep the government open. And so we had this big government shutdown. And, of course, in in the course of the government shutdown, Bill Clinton met an intern by the name of Monica Lewinsky. and lots uh, of Who inter- is that? Tell me about her. You, oh, come on. I'm just kidding. All right. I, yeah. But uh, so lots of things happened there. But that was essentially the moment that Bill Clinton won re-election mm. for two years later because he stood up to the Republicans, mm-hmm. and the Republicans kept saying, "No, he's going to have to sign it. He's going to have to keep the government open." And Bill Clinton stood on principle and said, "No, I will not." I don't think he stood on principle. I think he stood on political opportunism. But that's just me. Yeah, he might have done. But Bill Clinton. I mean, if I may bring things back to Trump, right? Uh, Bill Clinton's political goals and aspirations in his very character are very different um, from Trump's. And so I question any similarities between the motives of of causing a government shutdown. Well, uh, Clinton was able to blame the Republicans for the shutdown. Uh, The Republicans kept saying this, saying this is the president's fault because the president won't sign it. 
But that essentially established the precedent that when a government shuts down, it's Congress that's doing the shutting down, not mm-hmm. the president. That's true. Donald Trump going into this shutdown, however, he's just on the eve of the House majority. Yeah, so being sworn it, in. It, do, it doesn't work because the Republicans control both houses of Congress. So the Republicans are going to get blamed either way. If it's the president or Congress that gets blamed, it's the Republicans who get blamed. Mm-hmm. And back, so, so the next time the government got shut down in any significant way, and the reality is it isn't particularly significant because it shuts down the government, but all essential services stay open. Uh, what essentially happens is that people don't come into work, but they still get paid. You know, they don't get paid right away, but they get mm-hmm. back pay and all of that kind of thing. And so really it doesn't change anything. It just ends up costing a lot more money in terms of, you know, trying to back fund the government from the time the, when it diminishes. The, the appearance of it and the political weight of a shutdown is, is much more... From yeah, what I understand. Right, but. right. But as as time has worn on, it's it just looks sillier and sillier. And in 2011, which is the shutdown I think you remember, mm-hmm. um, that was the time that uh, Ted Cruz and Mike Lee shut down the government, essentially. Mm-hmm. The, the House Republicans had shut down the government, but the, Dem- the Senate didn't want to. But Mike Lee and Ted Cruz joined arm in arm and said, no, no, we're not going to vote for a continuing resolution to fund the government unless the government agrees to defund Obamacare. And the thing is, how stupid is that? Because you have a president of the United States where, who passed the Affordable Care Act as his signature achievement. What is the likelihood that he's going to fund a bill, who's going to sign a bill, that defunds his signature achievement. Yeah, and it's it's message based exactly, and I think I mean the apart from the caning of Charles Sumner, the the <laughs> conduct after uh, Newt Gingrich took over and kind of galvanized the Republicans, the, right. the conduct the conduct of of members toward one another really really shifted, where it became okay to kind of be more uh, derogatory or confrontational, or more confrontational, and and so now that the power of that. They're trying to use the power of that message today, but confrontations accepted and expected right. from people like Mike Lee and Ted Cruz and those, right. those you know, sort and Donald Trump. Right. Well, but the thing is, okay, you, this is the thing that really frustrated me about the whole Tea Party movement, which drove me out of the Republican Party, in that the Tea Partiers were so willing to stand on principle and give these big fiery speeches about freedom and everything else. And But the more they did that, the less effective they were. The odds of what they were doing actually becoming policy or becoming law diminish with the heat of the rhetoric. Yeah. So as Ted Cruz gives this big fiery speech about how we're not going to take it anymore, mm-hmm. he gets steamrollered and the government gets funded and Obamacare gets funded and he loses. Yeah, he, I mean, he goes out, he presents his case on C-SPAN and he looks great. And in Texas, they cheer for him. And then he goes next door to his, you know to the fellow representatives' offices, and they say, no way, we actually have to work together. Right, right. You know, I was a tour guide. Well, actually, I was an intern for Senator Alan Simpson of Wyoming, and I ended up functioning as a tour guide of the Capitol. I would take visitors from Wyoming on a tour of the Capitol, and I had to come up with things to say. And they were always so disappointed when you took them into the visitors' gallery to watch the Senate proceedings. Because people don't realize that the Senate proceedings, you have three people in the room. You have the senator who's speaking. You have the senator who's sitting as the president pro tem. 
the person who did that the most got what they called the Iron Butt Award. Your grandfather <laughs> won the Iron Butt Award a few yeah. times. But it's a member of the majority par- party who's sitting in on behalf of the vice president, mm-hmm. who's the real president of the Senate. And then you have the clerk that's just sort of keeping record of everything that's happening. And there's nobody there, and nobody's listening. And Aside so th- from some pages scurrying around. Yeah, you have some pages and things scurrying around. But, but everybody thinks that the Senate debate involves mm-hmm. the senator standing there holding forth, trying to convince their colleagues – and nobody's paying any attention to them. It's all empty rhetoric, all aimed at the people back home. And that's where the Tea Party, I think, failed in that they thought that's all they needed to do. Mm. And they didn't accomplish anything, and it was a complete and total disaster. And that shutdown blew up in Mike Lee and Ted Cruz's face in a way that I found a little more delightful than I probably should have. <laughs> anyway. Or should be admitting to, at least. Or should be admitting to. So, uh, when we get back, we'll talk a little bit more about the shutdown, but I want to get into Christmas and what Christmas means yes. politically. I know you're going to be excited, and we're going to talk about music, too. So mm, Good. I like those things. Because, you know, you're a humpback chub. I am. So this I, is... Founding chub, actually. All right. Well, uh, I'll be back with the founding chub in just a minute. Um, correct me if I'm wrong here, Jim. Um because, you know, I've been out of school for a whole year, so yeah. my brain's empty. You've been out for point. a whole year? You graduated um, last year? Well, actually, not quite a year. That just proves how empty my brain is. Oh, I, I graduated right. in the spring. But wasn't it in the in the mid-'90s, didn't Newt Gingrich really pioneer the stand to an empty yeah, he did, and, and pontificate to the cameras? And he caught flack for it, but it but it worked. Yeah, he really did. He 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 was the minority leader during the time when C-SPAN started covering what was happening on the floor of the House. So it used to just be that they would give speeches. The speeches would be in the congressional record, but they weren't big, fiery speeches because nobody was listening and they knew nobody was listening and nobody was pretending that anybody was listening. But Newt Gingrich would get get in there and he'd start thundering and give these speeches, and the speaker, Jim Wright, required C-SPAN to have the cameras pan the entire Mm -hmm. chamber to point out that Newt was speaking to an empty house. But that didn't stop him. I mean, Newt was actually very effective mm-hmm. at doing this kind of thing. So, yeah, he pioneered this, and it ended up blowing up in his face eventually. Except now Stephen had to leave, so I've just called in a substitute halfway through. This is, you're like the substitute pitcher. It's not Abigail. Would you care to introduce yourself? Um, my name is Eliza <laughs> Bennett. You've been here before. I've been here before. I'm you've your been, daughter. Yeah, you spent the whole day up on Capitol Hill because you are now an intern for the Senate majority, for the Republicans. I am an intern for the Republicans. And, and I am a Republican now. Don't are you tell re- anyone otherwise. Are you a registered Republican now? No, I'm registered unaffiliated. Registered unaffiliated. Well, when before Stephen had to go, we were talking about uh, government shutdowns and mm-hmm. how Newt Gingrich pioneered government shutdowns. Yeah. And it's just not going to work out well for Donald Trump, I don't think. Because if you don't have an end game where you can win a shutdown, you can't leverage it for for help. So this, I think, is a stupid way for the Republicans to spend the Christmas break. But I want to get into a broader idea of Christmas politics. Are you excited? Ooh, just what everyone loves over the holidays is talking about politics with their relatives. I understand. Well, it's not just, well, you know, for years and years, the whole issue, Bill O'Reilly, when he was on Fox News, kept talking about the war on Christmas 
liberals are trying to shut down Christmas. Er, those dang liberals. Those dang liberals. And, and uh, you know, you even had Donald Trump during the 2016 campaign say that when I'm elected, people are going to start saying Merry Christmas again. That I can promise you. And I have to confess that I have some certain sympathies with that. I used to get really bothered by Happy Holidays because people would say Happy Holidays when they meant Merry Christmas. Like you'd watch an ad and you'd have a Christmas tree and you'd have Santa Claus and you'd have all the trappings of Christmas and then they'd say Happy Holidays and this holiday. And for a while there, you're, you're, you're looking at me like I'm an idiot. Well, I just don't get if, like, everything else is being catered to Christmas. Why can't we throw any other religion that's not Christianity a bone and say happy holidays to acknowledge that they exist and they also are celebrating this time of year? Well, I'd rather you say happy Hanukkah. I mean, I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood and people said happy Hanukkah to me and I thought it was wonderful. Well, that's what, like, happy holidays does. It's trying to be inclusive. You're not... Well... I don't get why it's a big deal to... We have to pick one religion to tell them, enjoy your holiday. Well, yeah, but 94% of Americans celebrate Christmas. 6% in the millions of people that live in America is still quite a big number. But it's not a, I don't think it should be offensive to the 6% to say Merry Christmas to them. I don't think it's offensive. People who take offense are Christians who are like, you're giving me plain red Starbucks cups and you're saying happy holidays. You're destroying Christ. And it's like, no, you're not. They, these people who are these 6% are very used to living in the minority. And it's not them who are usually raising the fuss. I understand. And you know, times have changed, I think. I think the war on Christmas has been lost. I think Christmas won. And I don't think that, I don't just don't think it's an issue anymore. As far as I'm concerned, I don't really hear happy holidays very much anymore though. Do you? Um, I say happy holidays a lot well, of the times. That's because you're a leftist in disguise. No, I'm a Republican. I know. Yeah, but yeah, I, I'm, 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 I'm exposing you. Capitol Hill. I'm exposing you to the, to the wider world. Well, the big political brouhaha this Christmas, if you want to get into a political brouhaha, it focuses on Christmas music. And how terrible Christmas shoes is. Well, I haven't heard Christmas shoes once this My year. roommates sing it to me once a week he because s- they know I hate you. it. Well, what I have heard is Last Christmas over and over and by over. By Wham? By Wham and the covers. It's become this Christmas. It's the centerpiece of Christmas. The best version is by Ashley Tisdale, and I will take no questions on that. Uh, no, the best version is the, the, the Vienna Orchestra version. Did I send that to you? Yes, it has like four views on YouTube. It's, it's, that is a sign it's, it's not that good. It's this huge orchestra and these this choir singing it, and they can't speak English, so they don't know what they're singing, and it's very funny. But no, the big political brouhaha is about baby, it's cold outside. Oh, my favorite rape culture Christmas song. You know, well, so William Shatner... Who, you know, Your idol. if I didn't believe in God, I You'd would probably worship William, worship William Shatner. Right. William Shatner got into a lot of trouble on Twitter when he was defending Baby It's Cold Outside, insisting that everybody who's trying to tear it down are jerks. And he says, call the station, tell them to play Baby It's Cold Outside every day on the hour. And, and people were beating up on him. And I have to confess, I've never liked the song very much. I think it's a very clever song. And I think it's written by Frank Lesser, who wrote Guys and Dolls, wonderful composer. He wrote it so that he and his wife would have something to sing at parties. He would sing it with his wife. And it's not really a Christmas song. It's 
a winter song. You know, mm-hmm. it's cold outside, but it doesn't have any specific reference to Christmas. But it's not a song that has aged well. And there's no question that it hasn't aged well. I, I don't think Frank Lesser, when he wrote it, it's really interesting because a lot of people, if, if you go back to when it was originally written, it was, it was supposed to be empowering to women. Right. That these How are, is it empowering to women? Well, because women are given the op- that they're being told, "Oh, you're not allowed to stay with a guy. You don't not allowed to make that decision yourself." And she spends the entire time talking about how, "Oh, well, everybody else is going to be worried, but she still makes the decision. Okay, I'm going to stay." And so that was considered in 1944 to be a rather liberated view. But the fact of the matter is, in the Bill Cosby era, you can't have a line where you sing, say, what's in this drink, and have it call to mind anything but modern connotations to it. Right. And so I I, I think the fact that it's kind of fading into obscurity, I I don't think it's a – it it just just doesn't work. You know, when I was a a little kid in church, Mm -hmm. there was a song called When Grandpa Comes. Did you sing When Grandpa Comes in church? No. It's always fun when Grandpa comes. When Grandpa mm-hmm. Comes, hooray. No. I've heard it, but I never sang no, it. No, they still sing that. Okay. But the lyrics I learned as a little kid were, it's always fun when Grandpa comes, when Grandpa comes, we're gay. And, yeah. And, you know, it's a lovely little song. But But you can't change. sing that now yeah. because the meanings of those words change and the context, the cultural context of Baby It's Cold Outside has changed. Yeah. I think it's funny because I think a lot of the arguments I've seen saying this is stupid and this is just liberals being snowflakes is that yeah it wasn't written that way like how dare you take this song and like transform it into this rapist and blah 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 but i just think it's very interesting because you can't like you said with the grandpa song you can't put things in a modern context and expect us to still evaluate it when it was written like i was I born when it was written? I don't no, think 1944? so. Oh, is that one? I wasn't paying attention when no. you said that. Um, and so you just, you can't expect that of a modern audience. And so putting that in the modern audience will like, I don't know, tell people that this is okay and all right. And we don't want that. And so like, you don't have to make a brouhaha about it, but just like, let it go away. Like there are better Christmas songs out right. there. Christmas in Harlem by Kanye West is an example uh-huh, I would like sure to replace it, it with. All right. Well, when we get back, we're going to sum up the entire Christmas experience from a political point of view, and we will wish you all the happiest of holiday seasons. How's go. that sound? Good. All right, so to sum everything up, we're, we're coming up on the end of the year. And it's always been interesting to me that election days always take place right after Halloween. Spooky. Spooky. And there used to be a, a station in, in Salt Lake City. It's gone to a different format now, but 106.5 used to start playing Christmas, Christmas music, music yeah. on Halloween. Yeah, like I remember. the day after I, Halloween. No, the day of. I listened to it on the way home from a haunted house one time. Oh, it starts playing Christmas music. It just starts and, playing and Christmas music. And I know everybody hates it when Christmas music is played too early. Oh, I love it. I love it too. I, always, I love Christmas music. I love Christmas music. I love Christmas music, music any time of year. And... It's it's been very interesting to me because there have been elections that have been extraordinarily devastating 
as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, when the guy you think should win doesn't win. And when I've been working on campaigns and the guy loses. Right. And I have found that turning to Christmas music right after Election Day, I would just turn off the radio and I'd turn off talk radio and I'd turn off the news right. and I'd just crank up the Christmas music. And it was it just allowed me to put everything in perspective. Yeah. Because politics, you know, the goofiness of talking about the politics of Christmas, and I'm doing air quotes for the people who can't see me. Which is everyone but me. Everyone but you. But you saw the air quotes, didn't I you? I did see the air quotes. Uh, the politics of Christmas. The fact is politics are insignificant compared to what Christmas means. And it, uh, that doesn't even have to apply to people who are religious. The amount of goodwill and kindness and decency that you see on display during the Christmas season, during the holiday season, it, it demonstrates the best of us. And politics so often demonstrates the worst of us. And so I like to be able to take a moment at the end of the year to be able to just sort of have a greater perspective on the human experience. Mm -hmm. And because too often we look at everything through a political prism. And I just don't think life is, I think life is too short to do that. You, I majored in the wrong thing if life is too short to do well, that. Well, right. And in, when January starts, you're going to be spending all day, every day up on the hill dealing with politics. The hill of Utah, not of Washington, D.C. Well, it's, it's still a hill. It's still a hill. But yeah. yes, I will be doing politics. Have you figured out how you're going to get up there? Are you going to stay at Walk, Grandma's? Or maybe. You, but are you, are you going to stay here? Are you going to stay I, up and... I don't think the listeners at home care where I'm living no, in, I, for the no, next couple no, months. No, but it, it's, you know, when I, when I worked on Capitol Hill, not in Utah, but in Washington... It was a really great experience. And one of the things that was interesting about that experience, too, I, when I worked for Alan Simpson, he had a radio show with Ted Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And I got to write several episodes of that. And it was also my responsibility. They would tape them separately. So he would go record his section and Ted Kennedy would record his section. And then we would have to go over to the Kennedy office and drop off Al's. He, he had us all call him Al, which is cool. Ow, what a guy. Your grandpa didn't have people call him Bob. They all called him the senator. <laughs> Bob Dole's staff all called, called him Elvis. I called him grandpa. So you, you called, suck it, listeners. You called him I grandpa. was more exclusive. But uh, you go over to the Kennedy office, and I got to know people in the Kennedy office. And you start to realize that people that you disagree with are good people, too. doesn't matter who they are. And I mm -hmm. think that's something that we need to remember during the holiday season. So if you are listening to this on the radio, please subscribe at iTunes or go to the KSL Podcast Center. And until next week, this is Jim Bennett. And this is Eliza Bennett. And we're signing off for Stephen Provitt as well for Dinner Table Politics. Happy Eliza's 20th birthday. That's right. Eliza's birthday is the day after Christmas. So the real reason for the season. That's right.